The Bible begins with God creating the world. We see that in Genesis 1. And when he did that, he set into motion something that we call time. When we read there in Genesis 1 about the creation account, after each act of creation, it says, And the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, the third day. Time began. Time marked by the consistent and reliable rotation of the earth, the orbit of the earth around the sun, has been man's measure ever since the creation. Our lives are defined by units of time, years, months, weeks, days, hours, minutes, seconds. That's all we know as far as, as measurement of the span of, of events. And those measurements touch all areas of our lives. But just as Scripture records, when that measure of time came into being with creation, Scripture also records that there's going to be an end to time as we know it. There's many places in the Old and the New Testaments that refer to the last days, the end of the world, the end of all things. Scripture makes it clear that just as there was a beginning point in this creation, there will also be an ending point. Scripture is also clear that as that time approaches, there, that there are things that will indicate that that time is drawing near. Not too long ago, I heard, one, I heard someone talking about the last days and, and the events of the last days, and it spurred my thinking on this subject. And there's a lot of references we could look at in relation to the last days or the end of time, but there's one that particularly that I want to look at today. So I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here in 2 Timothy 3, we have the Apostle Paul giving some instructions to Timothy, the young minister. I'm going to read the entire chapter. We're going to go through it and look at a number of the verses, not quite all of them. But I'd like to read the entire chapter to give us the full context of, of these verses. So let's read at this time, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their, their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers lusts ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do, do these also restrict, excuse me, resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will love godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived." But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works." He begins this passage by saying, this know also. I think he's saying that, that what I'm getting ready to say here is a fact. Another modern translation puts it like this. It says, be sure of this. So in other words, be sure of this, that in the last days perilous times will come. We need to recognize that the idea of the end of time or the end of the world is something that is sure. And, and these events that will precede that time are as something that is sure. Even though it's our human nature to feel like that things are going to just continue on as they have. I'd like to invite you to turn back and look at just a couple verses in 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. Peter says this, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they, willing, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, 
and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We see here that Peter is saying that in the last days there's going to be people that scoff, that say nothing's going to change, the world's going to continue on, time's going to continue on. But Peter says that those people are willingly ignorant of the fact that at a previous time, God judged the world for its wickedness by bringing destruction by a universal flood. And we're told in the same way that there is coming another day of judgment, this time by fire. A day of judgment for the wickedness of this world. Also to deny the end times is to disbelieve Jesus Christ Himself, who many times spoke of the end of the world. We need to accept the fact that there will be an end of time and a final judgment of the sinfulness of mankind. And one thing that stands out when we look at that, and we see it in this passage that we just read, and we see it time and again in Jesus' teachings, that the last days are going to be marked by troublesome times and difficulties for the believers. Here in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says that in the last days perilous times will come. I don't know what you think of when you think of perilous times, but I find it interesting sometimes with a phrase like that to look at a handful of other translations and see how the translators of, of other versions translated from the original text. These are some of the words other translations use. Terrible times, times of stress, Grievous times and difficult times. We also need to recognize that these difficult or perilous times that have been predicted have a cause. They're caused by the unbelief of people, the rejection of the truth, the refusal to obey and follow God's ways. And Paul here tells Timothy and us what to expect during those times. And we have quite a list. And I've, I've always read this and, and viewed this as, as a list of things that are going to be going on in the world in the end of time. Outside influences upon the church, upon the believers. But I found it very interesting in studying this that several commentators expressed that this passage may indicate that these characteristics may be evident even within the church itself. 
And we'll talk about that just a little more further on in the message. Now, this list of, of characteristics of, of people in the last days is rather lengthy, and we can't take too deep of a look at, at each of these things, but I want to go through this list because this was beneficial to me to go through this list and look at a little bit of a definition of what each of these terms means. It's easy to read a word or, or a phrase and, and we kind of think we know what it means. But I found it interesting to, to delve a little deeper into some of these things. So first of all, we see it says that men will be lovers of their own selves. That's a focus on self at the expense of others. Also, it can be a focus on self at the expense of focusing on the spiritual side of life. It's a gratification of selfish desires ahead of serving others in Christian love. It's a focus on carnal things rather than spiritual things. Covetous. In a broad sense, that's speaking of a desire to attain something for self, to, to satisfy our selfish desires. We talk of seeing something that's not ours and, and coveting it. And I think it goes hand in hand with being a lover of your own self. I want what I want. I want what I see that I think is, is good. It's, a, it's uh, it's that maybe lust could be could be another word we could do. It's something an intense desire for something that's not ours. But I found this very interesting, specifically the Greek word that was used in the original text had the idea or the meaning of being fond of silver. So that term covetous there probably in the original had more of a meaning of a lover of, or a desire to attain uh, money. Next, boasters. Literally, it means a braggart. Someone that's always promoting self. When I read that, I had to think about all of the self-promotion associated today with social media. Next one, proud. Being proud is placing oneself above others, being haughty. Again, a lot of these go together. Seems like that fits well with, with boasters. Someone that's proud, usually they're, they're interested in promoting self and boasting. Next one is blasphemers. We think of a blasphemer as one who speaks out against God and against His truth. But it can also be even those who speak abusively or defamatorily against other people. The idea there is those who speak against 
what is good and what is of God. Whether it's against God himself or his people, his church, etc. Disobedient to parents. That one, I don't think, takes a lot of explanation. Seems like we're living in a day when we're plagued with, in our society, hopefully not in our homes, within the church, but we're plagued with disrespect of parents. So you look in Ephesians chapter 6, we see that when parents, excuse me, when children are disobedient to their parents, they're also disobeying a God-ordained authority, a God-ordained commandment for children to be obedient and honor their parents. And children that do that will set themselves up to struggle to obey other authorities in their lives as well. Next is unthankful. It's kind of interesting since we just came through the Thanksgiving holiday. Being unthankful is being without appreciation for the things that a person does have. You know, as believers, we are commanded to be content and to be thankful. And so it's saying here that those in the last days will be marked with having an, not having an appreciation for what they do have. And again, it can go hand in hand with being covetous, not being content, always longing for something else, looking at the greener grass on the other side of the fence, so to speak. Next is unholy. To be holy is to have godly qualities and characteristics within our lives. Not to be stained with, with sin, corrupted by the things of the world. So to be unholy is to reject what is holy, what is the righteous and holy characteristics of God. A refusal to surrender our inherited unholy sinful nature to the holy nature of God and His Son. Without natural affections is next. That has the idea of being hard-hearted, particularly towards our own kindred or those that are close to us. Being uncaring. Again, it's, it's a... It's a me-first attitude to be a hard-hearted person, to not have care and compassion for those around us, our families, our friends, our neighbors, etc. Truce breakers. Truce breakers are those who can, or can be those who don't keep their promises, found it interesting that some translations translate this from the Greek as unforgiving. And I had a little trouble trying to figure out in my mind how a truce breaker and an unforgiving person, how, how that paralleled. But the idea there in the original was 
meant to be without a truce. In other words, it's someone who cannot be entreated. Someone who refuses reconciliation. So that's where some translations get the the translation of being unforgiving. False accusers, those who strive to ruin the character of others. Again here, the original Greek word is diablos, which means one who accuses or slanders. That word is used 36 times in the New Testament. 33 of those times, it refers to the devil himself. The devil is the accuser of God's people. And someone that's a false accuser is doing the devil's work. Incontinent is to be without self-control. It describes those that have given themselves over to their own lusts and desires. Their, Their fleshly lusts control their life and what they do. It also could describe those who maybe not have not given themselves over fully to those fleshly lusts and desires, but have failed to master them, have failed to uh, overcome those things. Next is fierce. Fierce is the opposite of being mild or gentle. You know, gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So those who are fierce lack the quality of being gentle. Again, they're people without self-control. Despisers of those that are good. They're they're people that are hostile to virtue. They hate what is good. They hate what is of God. They're in opposition to people and things that represent God's holiness. Traitors. Being a traitor is to betray betray another into the enemy's hands. You know, Jesus predicted that there was going to be a time when even members of your own household would would turn you over to the authorities for serving the Lord. Next is heady, being headstrong, not willing to consider or give in to others. The original word here in the Greek has the idea of of falling forward. We're falling, a heady person is falling, we'd say head over heels to pursue their own way without giving consideration for the input of others. It's be the opposite of being meek and submissive and seeking advice, etc. Next is high-minded. 
Somebody that's full of themselves, haughty, conceited, and puffed up. And lastly, as lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. It's describing those who serve the God of pleasure rather than the God of heaven. Those whose main focus in life is seeking fun, seeking pleasure, rather than seeking God and His things. An unwillingness to sacrifice those pleasures to pursue God. And unfortunately, it's very descriptive of many in our day. Now, at the end of this list of these traits that we can expect to see in people in the last days, there's a very interesting statement in verse 5. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Now, I mentioned earlier that several commentators that I read mentioned that, expressed that these character traits may be, might be expressed by people within the church. And you know, verse 5 would indicate that. These warnings aren't about heathen people who don't make any profession of Christianity. These warnings are about people who have a form of godliness. They're making a profession of being a Christian. But yet they're not embracing the true power of the Gospel message. Rather, they're displaying these, these ungodly characteristics within their own lives. And his admonition is that we turn away from such people. We need to, be, to avoid being drawn into the deceit of those that are living according to these characteristics. Those that have denied the power of the Gospel. I'd like to consider that just a little further. I think we can understand what it means to have a form of godliness. The idea is, is that of, of an outward appearance of being godly. One commentator said that they have a show of religion. But in spite of how these people present themselves, how they look, how they act on the surface, he says that they have denied the power of the religion that they claim to have. So what's the power that they have denied? And I think I already used this term, but the power of the Gospel message, the power of the Gospel message is the power to change lives. It's the power to take away the old sinful nature that does all of these things that are listed here in the first several verses.
Those things are works of the sinful nature, not works of a changed nature. I already referred to the fruit of the Spirit. But in Galatians 5, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit or what will be produced in the life of the believer who is controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And I'd like to read that and think about as I read this how it contrasts to this list here in, in 2 Timothy 3. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 say this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. It's a list of characteristics that should be evident in our hearts if we are a believer in Jesus Christ. Characteristics of a person who has embraced the power of the gospel rather than denying the power of, of the gospel. So how do we embrace the power of the gospel in our lives? How do we make sure that we're displaying the fruit of the Spirit rather than denying the power of the gospel and, and, and allowing these things here in 2 Timothy 3 to be in our lives? That's also answered in Galatians 5 in the next verse. He says, after the fruit of the Spirit, he says, and they that are Christ's, those that belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. You know, there's two steps to attaining a life that's changed by the power of the gospel message. The first step is to accept the message to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To turn our lives over to Him. But the next step we see is here in, in Galatians 5.24. It says we must crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. Those are, are both conscious choices. The first, to choose to surrender to the Lordship of Christ is a, is a one-time, life-changing choice to accept the invitation of salvation. But the other is a daily choice. What am I going to do when my fleshly desires well up within me and, and, and make me want to respond in a way I shouldn't? Want to make me desire something that is not mine to have? Am I going to crucify? Am I going to put to death those those fleshly lusts and desires, that's a daily choice we each have to make if we're going to avoid this list in 2 Timothy 3. Now, back to thinking about the last days again. I suspect that probably most, if not all of us, would agree that we're living in the last days. That these, these things that we see here in 2 Timothy 3 are prevalent in today's society. And unfortunately, 
As I went through that list, I had to realize that there are many professing Christians that demonstrate some of these things in their lives. And also, as I studied, I was convicted that there's things in my life, there's areas in my life where I have room to grow, where I need to be more fully surrendered to God and to the power of the gospel. Like I said, these things are the fruit, rather than the fruit of the Spirit, they're the fruit of a fleshly nature. And without an ongoing alertness and an ongoing willingness to crucify self, these things are going to start to creep back into our lives. It's an ongoing battle. And I believe that according to what Paul says here, that as we approach the end of time, that battle is going to intensify. And we must be on our guard. I'd like then to drop down to verse 13 in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We see here it says that evil men and seducers, again this is talking about the end, the last days, the end of time, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It says that there will be those who by deception, draw away those who believe. And he says that that is going to become worse and worse. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says that those, those people, those deceivers are deceived themselves. So during the last days, we can expect to see an increase of people who are not only deceived themselves, but who also are making a strong effort to pull people, other people into the deception that they are in themselves. Spiritually, is a dangerous time for believers who are not grounded in the truth. And in verses 14 through 17, we have the answer or the antidote to that spiritual danger of deception. We see there in, in, in those verses, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, we see that He calls us to continue in what we have been taught, but those who are sound in the faith, those who have stood firm, who have been faithful and have not given in, who have not been swayed by popular opinion or the latest religious fad, or to continue in what those faithful people have taught us. We're also called to base our lives on the truth of the Scripture. You know, it's through the Scripture that we become aware of God and aware of our need of salvation, aware of our own sinfulness, And it's that knowledge of the Scriptures, the truth of the Scriptures that will carry us through the end of time. The Scriptures come from God, so we know that they're true. Jesus Himself said that 
the, thy word is truth. Speaking of, of God's word that he has revealed to us. We can depend on God's word to direct us. Even in the midst of troublesome times. In the midst of the onslaught of those who would strive to deceive and pull us away from the truth. You know, the only way to, to be deceived is to not be able to tell falsehood from the truth. So if we're thoroughly knowledgeable of the truth, the truth of God's Word, deception will be very unlikely. In fact, I think if we do what it says here, continuing in what we have learned from, from, from those who have went before us, who have taught us, and who have remained faithful, along with abiding in the truth of God's Word, deception will be very unlikely. We need to follow the good, sound teaching of those who have proved themselves reliable and doctrinally sound. We need to have a thorough knowledge and familiarity with the Scriptures. In verse 16, we see that the script, what the Scriptures will teach us. They'll teach us doctrine, which is Christian truths. They'll rebuke us or, or bring conviction where needed for sins. And they also will correct us when we're going astray. When we, when we get into God's Word, it will, it will redirect us where we are wrong if we allow it. All of this works to bring us to perfection, to perfect us and prepare us for good works. It's to, to lead us away from that the natural desires of the flesh toward a life that displays instead the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, I believe that we're living in those last times. And Jesus said that we should be alert to the signs of the end. In Luke 21, 28, Jesus said, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up. And lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. So we need to be alert and vigilant. So we're not deceived, so that we don't allow any of these ungodly characteristics to start to grow within our own hearts, to, to be the fruit of our lives. We need to keep our lives holy and pure in preparation for the end and for our Lord's return. I said earlier that I heard someone else talking about the end of time and they referred to this passage. And I was pondering it and I was thinking about I guess it's easy to look at something like this in a negative way that, you know, oh, these, these, these terrible times are, are coming or they're upon us. 
But I was struck with the thought that it's a choice. These times, God tells us, are going to come. And these things, these ungodly characteristics are going to come in people's lives. We're going to see it. But it's a choice. I don't have to be a part of it. I can choose by the grace of God to live above these attitudes. To crucify the desires of the flesh and to, by God's grace, display the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Perilous times may come, but we can face them with confidence as we surrender to the Lord and as we stand firm on His Word. God bless you. May we have a song.